We are still tugboat aficionados, though. Tugcon twenty twenty. One twenty twenty. I I thought the Tugcon saga had finally ended. <laughs> never <laughs> will. Tug never ends. You spoke too soon, friend. Tug forever. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Ho Ho Horrible Friends. We're a podcast in book club format about horror movies. This week we've got Black Christmas. Starting off, I'm Kyle. I'm Chris. I'm Mike. I'm Dan. And I'm Jarvis. And generally this podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about the plot. We're going to talk about some background of the movie. We're going to talk about some special effects, some uh, cinematography, some music, soundtrack, and then give our own little take on a spoopy meter. Dan, what information do you have for us this week on Black Christmas? So Black Christmas, this is the 1974 original OG of the slasher genre Black Christmas, not the piece of shit remake. That's right. I said it. Uh, also also known as uh, Silent Night, Evil Night, also known as on the release on television as Stranger in the House, the story that is based off of the urban legend of the babysitter and the man upstairs. Uh, this movie, 1974 version, is directed by Bob Clark. Bob Clark is, this is so, oh my gosh, reading the other things that he directed is so fucking weird. He directed A Christmas Story. He directed Baby Baby Genius 1 and 2. (laughs) And he directed Porky's 1 and 2. Oh my God. Wow. I will say it does show your skill as a director when you can do so many different genres of movies and just across such a wide different like variety like this horror movie and then like a classic christmas movie with a christmas story and then baby geniuses which i remember watching when i was a kid and then you have porkies which like they don't those movies don't hold up today but that's beside the point but you could just shows your skills as a director when you could do so many different genres and styles of movies so the budget for this it was six hundred and twenty thousand dollars at time recording uh, I assume, I, you know, I always say this, like I always do the conversion of inflation, but I never really know if like they calculate it in. So I just kind of do it. So if if I'm dumb, uh, please talk to us and tell me that I'm dumb and I don't need to do that. But I'm going to keep doing it for now. So uh, but if we take 620,000, we say that to 2020, uh, that's about 3.27 million and the box office for this was 4.1 million so it did pretty well box office wow uh, runtime yeah. runtime on this is 98 minutes other notable 1974 horror movies that we could have watched but i'm kind of glad we didn't uh texas chainsaw massacre young frankenstein i know it's not really hard but i just wanted to throw it in there and <laughs> frightmare i'm sorry Every- what uh, Frightmare. Uh, I'd never okay. heard of it. There weren't many 1974 horror movies, to be honest. Is that about a horse? It's got to uh, be about a horse. Babe. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> now I want to watch it. <laughs> no, this one. Uh, well, this one is kind of well known as like sort of the first holiday centric horror movie. Correct. Yeah, it's also like just one of the first uh, slasher films. Like this one inspired uh, Halloween. 
um, to take mm-hmm. place and a lot of other horror slashers. It was also one of the first depictions of uh, the, not to give away the ending of the movie right now, but it was one of the first movies to depict the uh, calls for, uh, coming from inside the house. Right. So our, our nude clock uh, we do every week, and our nude clock is basically just us pointing out the absurdity of nudity in movies and usually how it's not necessary. Um, and this week, we do not have any nudity in this movie. Uh, look at that. Another movie where nudity was not needed for it to happen. Um, so can, can we debate? Actually, yeah, I would like to debate. Is there a debate <laughs> with this? Yes, there is. Jesus there Christ. is man butt. There is man butt. For a like maybe two frames, yes. Uh, like three quarters of the way through the movie, the police officer comes back into the uh, the, the the really dumb police officer comes back in. Uh, oh, into, and he, no, it, he, but it was a different police pants. officer that uh, oh, was that happened. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Well, that guy pulls his pants down and then is just butt. Yeah. And that really pulled me back in. That, yeah. That's really what's in the movie. I do have point. some points on that scene, but we'll wait till we get around that time for uh, for me to talk about it. All right. So the film location, much to uh, Jarvis's dismay, is um, Victoria College, uh, the Hart mm-hmm. House, uh, University at the University of Toronto. It also I mean, takes place at um, Grenadier Lake or Grenadier Pond. I'm sorry if you are from Toronto or that area. Uh, I. I it said on the IMDb page, Grenadier Lake. But then when I looked it up, it said that it was Grenadier Pond. I don't really, I'm not from Canada. I don't know. I'm sorry. Try to do my best for you guys. Uh, places that you can watch this, you can watch this on YouTube for free. You can watch this on Peacock for free. Or if you want to pay for it and have it forever, you can watch it on Hulu Premium or Google Play. The tagline for this movie is, if this picture doesn't make your skin crawl, it's on too tight. And the picture that they're talking about, of course, is for the movie poster. Mm. Uh, I, I love that. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and, and rate that one here. Uh, two. Two out of ten. I don't like it. Yeah, I, <laughs> I feel like a tagline needs to be like short and sweet. And I feel like that was way too long of a tagline. And and I, I just think you need to loosen up because your skin might be too tight. That's yeah, true. Clearly. You I know, I, I like the tagline. I just... Don't think it applies to the movie because the picture that's talking Agreed. about is the infamous picture where she's like being suffocated by the bag. And it's like her skin's on too tight. Like that doesn't it's not like clever or anything. It's just kind of like it's a sick line, but it's just like it doesn't apply. <laughs> Nor is it really like consistent with any themes used throughout the movie. But I mean, they were just yeah. going to scare people. This is this is such early horror, like early slasher horror. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I like it. So last little bits of information. Uh, if you are interested where the house is, this is very public knowledge. So I feel comfortable sharing this. It's the house, the sorority house that is that this all takes place at, is at six Clarendon Crescent in Toronto. It's a private, private property, but it's pretty cool to see it. Um, as I said earlier, this whole story was inspired by, the urban legend of the babysitter in the man upstairs, but it was also inspired by murders that took place in 1943 in the Montreal area. Uh, and lastly, if you are from Montreal, 
Uh, just to give you a little shout out, this does pl- take place in the Westmont neighborhood in Montreal. So, uh, and with that, I'm going to pass this over to Jarvis, who's got. Just let me ask you first: Did you find anything about if this is like an iconic house where it's like a horror destination where people go to see it? Well, you can't go. From what I read, you can't go on the property. But like, yeah. I mean, go. yeah, is it's a private residence? Because I know, like, the Amityville House from Amityville Horror that had become like a tourist destination that people would just go up on their lawn and take pictures, and it got to the point where the owners they had to sell the house, and it's been passed on just because people get tired of people coming onto the property to take pictures of it. I didn't read anything and I did look at a couple different articles about it. I never read anything where it said that like the owners are like, get the fuck off my property. <laughs> like, so I don't, I don't think it's an issue, but it's also like a gated house. So people just have to look at it from the, from the street. And with that, I'm going to pass it over to Jarvis who has our synopsis for this week. All right. Thank you, Dan. Hey, so yeah, we are covering Black Christmas 1974. You know, it's funny when we talked about originally uh, doing Black Christmas, I agreed under the impression that we were doing the remake, um, knowing that it was a remake, right? I I believe it's 2005 is when the remake was was released. I think that's correct. Yeah, there was one in 2000. It was either 2005 or 2006, and apparently there was another one in 2019. 19, yeah, right. That apparently was very bad. Yeah, we're just not going to talk about that one. But I, so, I, so I'll tell you, I thought that we were doing the 2005 one, which I remember fondly. Um, I actually liked that one a lot. Saw it as a kid, um, knowing that it it was a remake. Um, and, you know, that's that's another reason why I really love doing this with you guys, because it gives you a better appreciation for these classic movies. I thought the remake was made as graphic and crazy as it was to kind of, I don't know, to supplement how dull it might have been, thinking that this was like an early film and it wasn't like going to be super graphic and crazy. And boy, was I in for a treat because it was quite the contrary. Like this movie doesn't seem like it was made in 1974, just given the content. You know, it's the simplicity of the movie and the subtlety of it and um, like never giving away too much. That's what makes this movie so great, in my opinion. And the thing I've noticed with a lot of modern remakes of classic horror movies is they go over the top with the violence and the gore and just to, because it's not an original movie since it is a remake, they feel like they need to go over the top to compensate for that. Right, they need to step it up. And that's, I was under the impression that it was it was so much that because this movie would be dull in those areas. But this movie is dark. I mean, I mean dark even to today's standards. Um, it's pretty gory. The language in it is surprising uh to say the least i was uh, not expecting the amount of like graphic language that this movie had especially in the first like 15 minutes (laughs) was not prepared for that yeah agreed yeah absolutely so anyway what i will say is before we get started i have a newfound appreciation for this film and for the classics as a whole uh because of this film so let's get right into it. So we open our opening credits. Uh, we see outside a house, uh, typical house, 
obviously Christmas time, there's Christmas lights, and we hear uh, the song Silent Night. Uh, we kind of pan onto the front door and see that it's a sorority. We see the Greek letters. We later learn that it's uh, Pi Kappa Sig. And we get um, something that we're pretty familiar with in this podcast, which is that first person camera view uh, panning from what we assume is, you know, to be the killer who is uh, are walking around the outside of the house trying to find a way in. And this uh, was utilized in uh, a few years later in Halloween. This was John Carpenter's homage mm-hmm. to this movie. All, all I could think of when we first got that killer there, the first time I watched it, all I could think of was who let Brainy from Hey Arnold in this movie. He was a heavy mouth breather, and that was very uh, annoying. Just yeah, (laughs) like it wasn't like it was unsettling. I was just like, oh my god, someone shut him up. Where's where's Helga? We need someone to punch this guy in the face. It goes on a little too long, but I, I do want to stress the the opening real quick for for later on. Um, what he pans between the three windows as he walks up to the house, uh, and he's looking inside to see who's in there, like you said, and then tries to go inside the house because that's that's going to come up a little bit later. So, so what he ends up uh, deciding on is he utilizes. Uh, I, I'm not sure if I'm uh, what is it a trellis trellis ladder. Yes. That the correct term. Yeah. Yeah. The trellis ladder, uh, which leads up to the, the attic window. Um, and he goes into this very creepy attic and there's a lot of kind of old antique, almost, almost childlike antiques, um, which we'll get into kind of after the summary. Um, but there are some theories out there, but anyway, um, we pan downstairs and there's a holiday party commencing. There's a room full of people, um, we assume that it's students, maybe students and faculty. Uh, it's kind of hard to tell. I think there's like a, a bit of an age gap in some of the people attending. Uh, I just think had- it was the 70s. Because yes. the first thing I noticed was like these, the, t- the two couple with glasses, I forget the name. Like those, That's the most 70s-ass hairstyles I've ever seen. The guy had an afro. and The big the guy with the afro. The, yeah, and then the girl had like short feathered hair. Like, yeah, this is clearly clearly the 70s. Oh yeah, seventies vibes immediately. I I I like this opening scene actually. These next couple scenes are actually really good too. So yeah, I, I think it had a very cute like kind of classic Christmas kind of opening to it from the beginning of like hearing the music to seeing the house to then going into the party. It was just like a nice classic kind of Christmas feel to it. It's so crazy that these movies can make Christmas songs feel so sinister. But they absolutely do. And can we just say, uh, while we're talking about, like, the 70s appeal, like, how fucking cool are fur coats? Like, you might feel however you feel about, like, how fur coats come to be, but, like, they look pretty damn snazzy. They do. They look They look very snazzy. Yeah. You don't see many people in fur coats anymore. Wonder why. <laughs> I mean, the last good one I saw that was even somewhat fur was Bane's from The Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> look, I only wear fur or mink if I look them in the eye before they get their head battered in. <laughs> yeah. I only wear fur if I skin them myself and make my own coat. Damn straight. I only wear fur if I was them. 
Ooh. Okay. 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 Buffalo, Buffalo Bill. Bill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd fuck me. Da-na, da-na. Would you fuck me? So, um, <clears throat> during the party, the, a phone call. Um, a girl goes to the phone. We later learn her name is Barb. Answers the phone call. It's a long distance call, which is a funny sentence. Uh, speaking in 2020. Um. And I, I was kind of listening to the call. I kind of wasn't. I wasn't sure if it was important, if it was inconsequential. We learned that it's a, a ski trip that she's kind of not very excited about. And she's kind of just inviting her friends to sort of forgetfully. But I always think the most like unenthusiastic invitation ever. It's like, hey, you want to come skiing? We're going skiing. You should come. It's like she didn't seem happy about it at all. Well, because the phone call was with her mom. She was supposed to hang out with her family. And then they, uh, her mom canceled on her. And the, the line, I believe, was like, you're a golden lace whore or something like that. She said to her mom. <laughs> yes. Gold plated. Golden plated whore. That's you know how you is. talk yeah. to your mom? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that a compliment? You gold plated whore, you. <laughs> she, was, she wasn't like mad at her mom. She was super let down, though. She was like, oh, fine. Go do whatever you're doing. And then that's when... She decided to head out. Plus, she was drinking a, a bit. She was like, I only had a drink or two. Mom. No, this, we learn a little bit later. This, this chick likes a drink. I don't think Barb is ever not drunk in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Barb knows how to party. I love Barb. She's probably, she's great. Yeah, I like Barb a lot too. See, I was, I thought I liked Barb. And then she came in kind of strong uh, a wee bit uh, in a couple scenes. And I was like, Barb, you, I know it's the 70s, but like maybe take a breather, dude. <laughs> Can, wait, hang on. We we've we've glanced packed past this, and I know it's gonna keep coming up, but like did anyone else notice that Jess doesn't know how to use a phone? Like yes. <laughs> oh, at all. Absolutely. I, I immediately didn't like Jess just because every time she answered the phone, she sounded like Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> 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 I, I, could not, I could not like attack down her accent. I think it was supposed to be something Frenchy or French-ish. I think she, I think but she, French. she I think she is French Canadian. Gotcha. That makes but sense. That that does make sense because yeah, she'd be like, "Hello, hello." Yeah. <laughs> By the end of the movie, she became my favorite character. Absolutely. It was irritating at first. Now, what you guys are obviously referring to is the the second phone call that happens shortly after this first phone call that we just discussed, um, where uh, they answer and they say, oh, God, it's the moaner again. And then all the girls come in and they all kind of listen to this call. And it is the creepiest fucking phone call ever. Uh, it had multiple voices. It sounds like it sounds like someone was literally being killed and someone was laughing. It It sounded like layered voices. It was pretty impressive. Yeah, it was um that was actually the director Bob what was it Bob Clark um he said that he stood on his head and would like he would to like mess with his larynx so he could talk in weird ways. Okay. See to yeah. me it sounded like uh Linda Blair and the Exorcist when like Reagan when she's possessed when she that's what mm-hmm. it sounded like to me. That's really cool. That little tidbit you just came out with, Dan, that I, I mean, wow, that little bit did, you know, standing on your head did that much to it, to his voice and what he was able to do with that. I thought, I think that's cool as hell. 
Yeah, I, I also find it interesting because you see like the reactions of the people on the phone, but they, um, I don't remember what the main actress, the actress that played Jess, she said in an interview that the director edited in the phone calls afterwards. So she had no idea what was being said. She just had to do reactions to it. They did seem kind of cavalier because the lines that came out, and I'm paraphrasing, were, and this is all in a crazy accent or several crazy, you know, voices, is let me lick your pretty pig cunt. I'm like a tuning fork, baby. I'm going to fuck you. And it ends with, I'm going to kill you. I mean, yep. that's how I picked up my wife, actually. So those exact words. <laughs> <laughs> And then, and then, and then you took her to see Rubber, and the rest was history. <laughs> and the rest is history. <laughs> oh, it, it, there was actually a fun. Uh, I don't know if you guys called it. There was like a thumb tongue insult somewhere there. I think this is actually when the girls fight. That there, there's like a, a little tiff between Barb and Claire. Did anyone kind of catch uh, like sort of what that was about? Uh. <sighs> I thought I did. I thought I had it, but no, I, I don't remember. It seems Barbara's fighting with everybody throughout this movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah she was starting to shit with everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, it had something to do with... I, you know, Claire Claire didn't want to go with her to... What's it called as well? She said or to go skiing or whatever was the, was the first part, but I can't remember why she like stormed off. That Oh, it was something about... Um, Barbara said Townies. that you can't rape a townie. Yes. What? Uh, it, yeah. So it must have been like a, a another sorority or something like that. I, I don't really know, but she was. Uh, go ahead. I don't. Jarvis, I don't know. It, I don't. Well, so the only thing the only thing I can kind of like gather from that exchange is like maybe she's a local to the area, and it's sort of a mm-hmm. slight to her upbringing. You know, like her her. I think Barb gave off very very heavy towny vibes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You think Barbara, who says you can't rape a townies, gives off. Townie vibes. Yeah, she's projecting. She is clearly oh, a townie right. herself. Interesting. Okay. I don't know. Huh. I'm just starting yeah, to but against that, the wall seeing if it stays. That's why uh that's why Claire runs away. She's like disgusted by what Barbara's saying, and then she's like, ah, I gotta go pack anyway. <laughs> but then we meet the best character when she runs away, so it's all it's okay. Yes. You mean Claude? I mean Claude. I love Claude. Do tell. I don't have much for Claude. Claude is the fluffiest, beautiful, most oh, beautiful. Don't even start oh, okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I have like, this is why people shouldn't have cats. Because everybody that Whoa. died in this movie was somehow, it was like, when Claire gets killed, it's because of the cat lures into the closet. When the old lady gets killed, it's because she's looking for the cat. People should not have cats. Cats are terrible creatures. That's Mike, because- I'm gonna, Mike, I'm gonna stop your argument right there because at any of those points, it wasn't really the cat; it was the person mimicking the cat to get okay. their attention. Okay, if, but if you don't have a cat, then you don't go looking after the cat noises. Mike, so you're gonna I- lose this argument because the four other people in this podcast with you <laughs> all have cats. <laughs> okay. And if you hear cat noises at night. It was fun doing this podcast, and you will be missed. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, wow. Okay, that's that's an interesting way. I did not think of maybe that the killer was 
was imitating the cat noises. Anyway, okay, so uh, the long story short of this is that Claire and Barb get into this weird exchange where Claire uh, decides to go up and remove herself from the situation and go finish packing because she's about to go back to her parents for the holidays. Um, so we, we get into her room and we can see that the camera is now f- uh, looking at her from her closet through the cellophane, like a uh, dry cleaning plastic of some of her wardrobe. And so someone's clearly hiding, uh, which I, I love that angle, especially knowing that this was such an early film, like, like so many films do that exact angle. Um, yeah, it's a good angle. I, I thought that this part was, uh, it brought us into the movie very quickly, right? Like we, we had this little party, like, okay, I'm kind of into it, but this, this is like, hello and welcome to the movie very quickly. It's like, this is going to be the majority of the film. So yeah, no fucking around here. Well, she hears the noise. She goes to investigate. She's immediately grabbed by the throat. Um, they, this is when, uh, the old lady gets kind of introduced. This is Mrs. Mack. Um, she is the house mother. Um, she gets in there. The girls are downstairs. They start exchanging gifts. They start making a lot of noises as a sorority. I'm sure is often pretty loud, so they cannot hear uh, what little noise Claire is is able to give off to alert them. Uh, so she's killed, and we see this beautiful like shadow silhouette of that we've also seen before in this podcast of the killer with Claire on his shoulder moving throughout the top hallway of the house uh, before he takes her up to the attic. So well, I thought I guess, it was beautifully done. I guess you could say that he took Claire's breath away. Oh my God. Oh, our for respect. Ooh. I got more. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, poor Claire. You didn't deserve that Claire. Uh, and oh, so going back to Mrs. Mack, she is probably my favorite character in this whole film. She is mm-hmm. funnier than hell. And she is, is is such like a welcome personality that I was not expecting for a film in the 1970s. Like she's, she's just such like a, I mean, there she has such a personality that is like consistent even with today where it's just like, ah, oh God, I don't feel like dealing with all these people and she's hiding booze and like sneaking away to drink. Like she's so much fun. There's <laughs> booze everywhere. Of, of how creative she was with hiding her booze. Like especially B is for booze and has it hidden in a book. And then she's <laughs> yeah. brushing her teeth and just opens the toilet and pulls it and pulls a bottle out of the toilet. Like she had like so many different hiding places for her booze. And I thought it was amazing. Um, that's not creativity. That's alcoholism. Uh-huh. It's creative <laughs> alcoholism. alcoholism. Hilarious. Yeah, creative, yeah. It's creative alcoholism. It, it gave her a creative outlet, Mike. That is true. But has anybody outside like movies and TV ever used a hollowed out book to hide something? No. I always I meant so. to, but that's a lot of work. Yeah. That's a that ton of work. work. I, don't, I gotta go out and get a book and then I gotta hollow it out. You know, there's a lot of steps there. I gotta find one that has a B that starts with because B is for booze. Do you think that she has like something in every book? Like she's like, A is hey, for it's alcohol. alcohol. Yeah, or just like different kinds of like booze like she's like b is for brandy v is for vermouth 
C is for cat. Oh, look, here he is. Here's Claude. Oh, He's Claude. <laughs> And then she squeezes Claude, and then like a little fucking airplane bottle comes out of his mouth. <laughs> She's like, good boy. <laughs> oh, all right. Jess, uh, Jess at this point goes to check on Claire. Uh, she knocks at her door. There's no answer. And this is where we get that classic shot that's known throughout all of horror, the horror genre. Uh, and this is where Claire is uh, asphyxiated the plastic cellophane from her, from her, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, dry cleaning uh, is pretty deep into the mouth. Like it, uh, and she's overlooking the outside of the house from the attic window with a single candle lit. And it's a very so ominous crazy. shot to see her, like, especially when you see the street view, like the, just the dimly lit attic from the candle, and you just see, you can barely make out her sitting in the rocking chair up there. It's real ominous. It's a great shot. I love it. The whole presentation is great because like visually it's it's like stunning because it like it it's a powerful image like how deep the plastic is in her throat and then the candle is there and he she's being rocked right so there's even motion with her stillness and he's singing this nursery rhyme that is just so creepy and at this point the camera fades to a church steeple which is in the town center. And this is where we meet Claire's dad, uh, Mr. Harrison, who is waiting for her. Um, and he starts asking around of where to find her. Uh, so he goes to the sorority house where our house mother, our favorite house mother, Mrs. Mack intercepts him. Uh, while this is happening, um, they're throwing a uh, kind of like a, a Christmas social for underprivileged children where Afro man from earlier is being the absolute worst Santa ever in the history of Santas. Uh, is he the worst Santa or the best Santa? He's the worst Santa. He's pretty, yeah, he's pretty much the worst Santa. Yeah. He's yeah. pretty fucking bad. I read, I read something about um, like talking. I, I thought the article was going to go into like talking about how all these kids, like they seem like they're like good kids, but they all have like, reasons that they're dying like or reasons that they're all like i don't don't know how to put it like they all have sins yeah yeah kind of like he's like cussing in front of the kids barb is like giving the kid alcohol um mrs mac is like an alcoholic like i i don't know i thought it was a little interesting maybe it's not i don't know one of them is transgender (laughs) (laughs) one of them's a lesbian Oh no, that not that movie. <laughs> shout, out to, shout out to Conjuring the Devil. If you haven't heard it, go check it out. That's horrible friends. Or Spotify. I don't know. Or never watch it because <laughs> it's just the worst. Back to our story. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, who's better, Mrs. Mac or the mom from Conjuring the Devil? Mm. Mrs. Mac. Mrs. Mac. I I could get drunk with Mrs. Mac. She's great. <laughs> she would teach me all new ways to hide my booze too. <laughs> So, yes, uh, terrible Afro Santa is cussing in front of the children. Um, and then is th- this is where Claire is also feeding children uh, like uh, champagne, right? Yeah, and it's not even like, oh, you get a little taste. He, she's full on letting the kid like sip on that glass. <laughs> yeah. Sipping on gin and juice. So uh, Claire's dad agrees. Um, at, first off, Claire – 
Claire's dad, Mr. Harrison, this is the first time he's seeing the sorority house, and he is pretty displeased with what he's seeing. So, uh, and the house mother is running endlessly to try to cover up, like, just what these girls have up on the walls, you know, naked pictures. It's, it's I a lot think of- that was her room, and she was trying to cover up her, like, the butt of the erotic art on the wall when she was talking mm-hmm. to the dad. I, that was, like, a really funny scene because she had to hand up against the picture the whole time. Just trying to talk no, to this guy. I I would agree to you agreed with you at the beginning of this, like at this exact moment. But later on, I think they enter the room with a police officer, and uh, it's definitely Claire's room. Like this is Claire is just uh, not Claire. Yeah, it's Claire's room. All right, person who went upstairs. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, and we get a little more, uh, I don't know if we want to call it character development from Mrs. Mack, but like, we just, we have more reasons to fall in love with her. Uh, we get some of the funniest mirror dialogue I've ever heard where she's, she's about to go, uh, out, uh, Mr. Harrison has agreed to take her into town and she's getting ready in the bathroom. And she goes on to say, she's like, well, I don't know what they expect me to do with these girls. I try my fucking best. These girls would fuck the leaning tower of Pisa if they could climb it. And I bust out laughing. <laughs> I think that was one of my favorite lines of this movie. There's there's just some really fun comedy between them. Uh, I, I think she she's looking for her cat and she's just like, uh, Claude, you fucking piece of shit. And then it, it was I wasn't sure if it was supposed to be like a jump scare, but Mr. Harrison's head just kind of pops up the stairs. It was just it, it, all around a very funny exchange. Well, how do you think that the Leaning Tower Pizza got its lean? Because it used to be the Tower of Pisa, then these girls got to it, and you know now it's the Leaning. Are you insinuating that Pi Kappa Sig fucked the Leaning Tower or fucked the Tower so hard that it gave it its lean? <laughs> no, it's exactly what I'm insinuating. Doesn't it always lean to the left though? Doesn't don't don't all pieces? Don't all pieces. <laughs> <laughs> Just, just that one. <laughs> just that one. That's it. Okay. All right. Anyway. Yeah, okay. Good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Me no, too. Me too, guys. Well, now we meet uh, Jess's pianist boyfriend. This is who Jess was speaking to uh, at some point earlier on the phone. Um, they meet up in what I assume is his sort of uh, like studio work area. It has a large grand piano, and she tells her boyfriend, his name is Peter, that she is pregnant. She does not want it. He is very pleased by this news, but she d- is not. She does not want it. She wants a dispo- She wants a disportion. She wants a smushmortion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, he does not take the news very well. Oh, this guy was the worst. I hated this guy. Yeah, he's garbage. Because he, he was trying to, like, gaslight her. He was saying, oh, you can't have an abortion. You can do what you want to do. I love you. Uh, it was. I hated this guy more than anything. Yeah, it, I. The only thing I appreciated out of this conversation was that. Uh, at, I don't know if it's appreciation, but it's it's kind of, it's telling that this is the same conversation that people are still having to this day. You know what I mean? Like nothing has changed. Oh, definitely. He's like, you can't do that. You can't do that. You didn't even ask me. And she's like, go fuck yourself. I'm going to do this. It's my body. <laughs> yes, but it's not what I want. And as, yeah, right. as the man, I make all the decisions for both of us. Exactly. I, was I, like, man, hated, what a- I hated Peter so much. 
<laughs> what a pooper. Yeah, there's definitely I something. Want a baby that. now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the roles of gender normativity, uh, I, I would say there, there's not a lot of progress between then and now. But you're right. No, it was kind of interesting to see that, you know? So uh, this is the next creepy phone call that we get. I don't remember who answers, um, but if you are able to kind of uh, go back and listen and really focus on the words, you'll hear, uh, you know, Billy, what did you do to Agnes? Where did you put Agnes, Billy? Uh, your mother and I must know. And that's I, I didn't get much more than that. But uh, it, it's just crazy because you are confused at this point if there are multiple people on these calls or if this is just one person who's able to affect all of these different accents. It's kind of like Psycho when Norman Bates was doing the voice of his mother and himself having conversations with each other. That's what these phone calls feel like. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Well, at this point, they've had enough. Uh, they go to the police station uh, to report that Claire is missing and Barb is absolutely wasted. Um, and there's a couple of kind of intense exchanges between her and the attending sergeant at the desk um, who tries to get their information. And Barb tells him that their number or their connecting number is fellatio. And he writes it down. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's a new exchange. This cop is not very smart. No, I understand there are some pretty strong opinions about Sergeant Nash. If anyone would like to chime in. <laughs> he is an idiot. Did, did we already mention his comment about 90, 90% of women that go missing are just at a cabin with a guy? No, no, that's, oh, that's <laughs> exactly what we're looking for right now. <laughs> Who said that? Who said that, Billy? That's Sergeant Nash. No, that was Sergeant, Sergeant Nash. Nash. No. So when oh, yeah. I had old Billy copy saying what we're all thinking. Because <laughs> nothing calms down a worried father like just saying, don't worry, she's probably getting railed out in like a cabin somewhere in the woods. <laughs> you know, I, probably not dead. You know, I, I told you guys, I, I linked um, the West Side Story song of Officer Krupke because I was like, oh my gosh, this is like the movie version of Officer Krupke. So I, I decided to write a, a little verse about him. So I just want to sing it to you guys real quick. Um, yes. So it's uh, Dear Stupid Officer Nash, why can't you understand? It's just your sexist attitude. It's getting out of hand. You're supposed to help the public. You think that Claire is dead? Leaping lizards, that's why we're seeing red. Bravo. Bravo. Fantastic. <laughs> Good. Love it. Love it. Love it. Well, now you need to make the full version of uh musical just based on this cup. Oh, that would yeah. be great, right? <laughs> and that's the movie we will be reviewing next week. So Dan, get to it. All you right. have to subscribe to our Patreon to get the full song. Yeah, subscribe yeah, yeah. to our Patreon and uh follow us on our only only dance where our only dance. Only dance. Uh-huh. Only dance. You'll see oh, me eating pizza and writing this story. Okay, so there are a couple things that are happening. This movie is pretty fast-paced um, in, its, in its scene cuts. A lot happens. Uh, you know, there's a lot of women in the house, so they kind of span out. Um, so while they're at the police station, Jess goes to retrieve Claire's boyfriend, uh, who's at the hockey rink. And he 
comes back to the police station uh, a few scenes later and just immediately starts demanding results, uh, kind of lays into Officer Nash and says, you know, you, 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 there's no reason for you to be as dismissive of this situation as you are. Uh, it gets the attention of the detective who actually starts paying attention to the situation, you know, like police officers are supposed to do. So bravo to Claire's boyfriend. Wasn't this the part where <laughs> Lieutenant Fuller was taking information about someone's missing daughter and he just did not give a fuck about that? <laughs> he was like, yep. Mm, she's missing. Anyway, something else I can do? Oh, yeah, let's go over there. <laughs> this this whole police station. They're such pieces of so, shit. They part really of, are. Part of, me is a, part of me is a little... Uh, it questions the idea of... It was At this point, we, we're not sure if he's completely incompetent or he's completely ignoring the women because as soon as the guy shows up again, he's like, oh. Uh, it, someone comes in and is like, oh, you should actually take him seriously. And he's like, oh, I guess so. Because like it, it just seems like he's very just extremely dismissive to the women. He's got well, he does have one and a half drunk women, and then <laughs> the father, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think it was that combined with the fact that Billy had some kind of connection to the police, like with like the family. I think a family member might have been a cop, but they had some kind of. So? I I mean I might be incorrect here, but I think there was some kind of line that said that. They had somebody in common that they knew, and that's why mm-hmm. he got expedited, or just because yeah. he was a man and not a woman. Yeah, it was. It definitely yeah. felt like, what's that? What ho? A well-endowed man has just walked in. Well, what seems to be the problem? All these women wouldn't <laughs> shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, a sensible, reasonable voice. Yes, how may I help you, good sir? Another penis has entered. Well, we better listen to that thing. Well, uh, speaking of gentlemanly voices, um, it's simultaneously with this scene, we are seeing uh, Jess's boyfriend, who has just received the bad news that uh, his girlfriend, who is pregnant with his child, is going to get the abortion. Uh, Now he has his, I guess this is kind of like his large audition or recital. Um, I'm, I'm not a classically trained musician, so I'm not entirely sure of the context. But essentially, I think this is kind of like his finals, the equivalent of, I would say. It's funny that it was like failing. And I it just it does not go really well. Good. I was like, damn, that's all. really impressive. Oh, I, I thought I it, I loved tell. watching him fail. I felt the same way at first, but then you just see like he's sweating profusely and the three people that are watching him seem so disinterested in what's going on that – that conveys the fact that he's doing poorly and followed up by the fact that he destroys the piano after the recital. It yeah, just shows I, he failed. I'd say that's the dead giveaway if, if there was any confusion at that part. But like if you just close your eyes and, and listen to that, to him playing that uh, specific concerto, like I just, I guess I don't have like a classically trained ear. I have no idea if it was good or not. Couldn't tell you. The only thing that gave me any inference was like them side eyeing and looking disinterested. And then him smashing the grand piano. Yeah, it it, honestly, none of it seemed like he was doing bad. And even the guys giving him a side eye, like they're they're supposed to be like, you know, professional musicians or whatever. And they're just intently listening. So nothing in this scene says he's doing bad. The only thing 
that happens is later on he smashes the piano and then gets all fussy about it and says, how do you think I did? And it's, I, I don't know. How did you do? <laughs> Honestly, I think him sh- destroying the piano sounded better than what he played before. <laughs> I mean, uh, he plays a lot of weird notes, but like, I don't, I don't think it was bad. Okay, we're getting too in the weeds about this guy's like dissertation. Effectively. <laughs> well, it, it, the thing I did notice here is he, especially in this scene, he looks exactly like a low rent Christian Crispin Glover. I don't know if it's just me that noticed that, but he was like a budget version of Crispin Glover. I don't know who that is. I believe you. Uh, he played the dad in uh, Back to the Future. Crispin Glover? Yeah. Yeah, yeah you're right. Know, oh, yeah, you know what? Yeah, I can see it now. Um, I, I I wrote this down for later, but just, just throwing it out there. Uh, I started referring to him as Pro-Life Peter. Um, <laughs> Pro-Life Peter. <laughs> <laughs> He's a really shitty superhero. <laughs> Let me save you from yourself. <laughs> Him and Bible Man are hanging out on the weekends. Oh, man. <laughs> hey, you heard the second coming's coming soon? Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. Uh, so uh, our next scene is Barb not making the situation with Mr. Harrison, Claire's dad, any better. They're at dinner, and she is drunk, reading a Playboy on the couch. Um, <laughs> I think everyone but her is kind of caught on to the notion that, like, hey, we need to tone it down while this father of a student is around, except for Barb, who is just, like, in full effect herself, reading a porno on the couch, and starts this dialogue about how there's a particular breed of turtle that can fuck for three days straight. I loved it. The more of a mess Barb got, the more I liked her. Just because she was fun to watch. She seems like she'd be super fun to hang out with. I I just, I like Barb. I want to subscribe to turtle facts with Barb. Like I just, I need more turtle. Yes. Uh, And it gets pretty intense after that because she kind of in a drunken state because they're being quiet. She, she goes on to kind of ask if they assume that it's her fault that this has happened to Claire and, and she gets kind of judgmental and, you know, pointing, starts pointing fingers at everyone in the room and they tell her to go to bed. Um, And this is where we start getting into the search that has now been organized by the detective who now that a man has entered the police station has started to actually do something. Uh, so we are looking for Claire, as well as another girl who we find out uh, her name is Janice. It's kind of a subplot that that has been going on for a while, but it you know it's not super specific. Mrs. Mack is back at the house, and she's packing to go to her sister's, like she's told the girls. Um, and we start hearing some meows from the attic. The taxi pulls up outside, and she's ready to go until she hears the meows. And now, was it Chris who said that um, this? You think that this is the killer who is making these sounds? Yeah. Is that is that something that you just put together? Or is that something like you researched? Because I I didn't make that connection. Uh, I would like to say it was something I put together, but um, sadly, no, it was something I uh, researched. It makes sense. I, I just, I definitely didn't think about it. But I mean, yeah, like the cr- the hardy, horrible, like creepy sounds that this guy's make, I wouldn't put it past him to, you know, mimic the sound of fluffy, adorable Claude. <laughs> Can you just imagine 
the director, John Clark, just on his head making cat sounds into a microphone. (laughs) (laughs) This is serious, everybody. (laughs) With a budget of like basically $3 million. Like, all right, what are we going to do here? Stand back and hold my beer. I got this, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody hold my legs. Odd to be an intern coming back with the coffee order, walking into that room. Oh, God. Anyway, uh, Mrs. Mack goes up to the attic following the sounds of the what she assumes is the cat. Uh, she can't see fucking shit up there until her eyes focus and then she sees Claire's lifeless body. She hears the breathing behind her, turns, and we've seen for a while that uh, the killer is holding a hook like kind of trembling, holding this hook and he lets go. We see the hook kind of pan toward the camera and her body gets, we, you know, we hear the hook and the body gets uh, like quickly pulled up into the attic and Mrs. Mac is hella killed, killed hard. Yeah. That was a cool way to kill somebody. I mean, we saw something similar happening, ghost ship. Yes. But like, this was a great kill. And, you know, like, the more I think about it, like, since this movie was such, like, a bedrock for so many slasher flicks, like, that was, to me now, looking back, it's such a clear homage to this film. I guess you could say that Mrs. Mack is off the hook for being the house mother. (laughs) You You have more of these, don't you? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The taxi leaves. Uh... And this is where we get into this really nice uh, – we shift into this first-person view, back to the first-person view. But this time, the killer is just a – just kind of demonstrating lunacy, uh, complete and utter lunacy, just in like this kind of violent tantric rage, just starts throwing uh, all the contents of the attic all around. And it's really, really powerful, and it's really believable. We shift from there. Uh, we shift from there uh, back to the search party, uh, where Janice, the other girl that was missing, her body is discovered in the park. They don't show anything; they kind of leave it up to imagination. I just pieced this together right now. So I read before that every time we get a phone call, it means that they've killed someone. Uh, Billy's killed someone, and right, we didn't. So at the very beginning of the movie, we didn't have anyone. That was like he just called. That's probably because he killed uh killed her out there, and then he was making the phone call after. Oh shit! Hmm. Yeah. yeah, I can see that. Yeah. But I believe this was like the ongoing like background plot where this little girl had been missing, and they finally find her at this point in the movie. So I don't know if the two deaths were related. I don't know if the guy in the attic killed this girl that was has been missing or not but i like your theory yeah i i mean it might not be a thing but just thought of it i think that theory is really the only it's yeah it's really the only semblance that you can kind of derive because there's nothing else that would connect her to the story other than you know him calling after every murder that makes a lot more sense to me, actually. So now we have another phone call, which is consistent with the theme we just spoke about. Now that Mrs. Mack has died, we get another phone call. Um, Jess immediately calls the police. And Peter, her boyfriend, descends from the stairs in kind of a, a little bit of a jump scare. The dispatch officer kind of dismisses Jess and tells her 
that there's been a murder in the park and basically says that he's too busy to deal with whatever she's got going on. So, like, at this point, like, did anyone else, like, was anyone else confused what direction they were going with Peter? Like, at this point, it was clear to me that, that like, Peter's the fucking killer. Why the fuck else would he be upstairs? I didn't think it was Peter. I didn't think it was any of the, the boyfriends. I thought it, I thought it was Peter, and also the fact that she was just so unconcerned with the fact that he's been in the house. Like she just got in, is on the phone, and then all of a sudden Peter's coming down the stairs. Like he's just like, "Hey, I let myself in. Was taking a nap upstairs." Like yeah, they, that's not they, a red flag. They do try to they try to throw him definitely under the bus for this one, and for at something. You know what I mean? Like he he is like we said, pro life. Peter is the worst, but. We're not sure exactly, personally. I, I wasn't sure if it was him or not. Well, you know, he's not Mr. Content from Slumber Party Massacre. He can't just be hanging out upstairs and coming down whenever the hell he wants. R.I.P. Um, Mr. Content. <laughs> but no, like at this point, they've established motive, right? He's angry about the abortion. Um, he's failed his, what I assume is kind of like his final audition. Um, you know, so like the motive is established, you know, to like make him even crazier than he's already being, you know, having killed these girls. So I, I was fully on board with it being Peter at this point. And I was confused why they were being so blunt and it wasn't like more mysterious. So after he comes down from upstairs for like no reason, um, he offers to drop out of school and to marry Jess and they can live happily ever after. And everything's be everything's gonna be fine. She can still live out her dream, blah blah blah. Gives her the whole song and dance, and she turns him down immediately. And he's pretty pretty pissed about this. I, this just made me hate him even more because he just basically lays out the whole plan, and he's like, "So here's what we're gonna do, and what you're going to do." And then after she shuts it down, he's like, "You selfish bitch!" And I'm like, "Really, Peter?" She's the selfish one. Oh, pro-life Peter's the fucking worst, dude. So worse. I was like, you piece of shit. Yeah, he seemed like melodramatic. He was like, ah, oh, well, I failed my final and we're going to have a baby together. I'm going to drop out of school. I'm going to get a job. We're going to raise this baby. It's like she she's interested in none of that. She wants to live her life. She has her own goals she wants to achieve. And she, she doesn't want to have a baby right now, especially with you. And... Peter was just all about what he wanted and his plans. And it was pro-life Peter, not a fan. What was the seventies like that? He's just like, yeah, I could drop out of college. And so can you, we'll just have a baby and you know, money will just appear because I don't think that's a like exclusive to the seventies attitude. Like, even that still goes on today. It's like, Oh, we'll figure it out. It's I like, think everything before 2000. Everything before everything before the housing market crash was just affordable. So fuck it. Man. Let's drop out. Man, that is so not relatable. Damn. It sucks. <laughs> You're not wrong. Well, no, it, it, I, th- I think it was kind of nice for Jess to have sort of this empowered woman stance because uh, I, I didn't expect that kind of attitude. Like just when I think 70s, that's that kind of like revelatory you know, attitude is not what I associate that time period with in terms of yeah, like formativity. Because it was like the sixties and the seventies was a major like shift in like the women's movement and women being more empowered and not just 
like a side piece of the man there with. Like, yeah, I like that Jess was determined and strong woman who wanted to do what she wanted to do. And she wasn't going to let getting pregnant or some guy decide for her what was going to happen. So Jess and Peter continue to argue about abortion in the living room. Um, she drops a line or um, I'm sorry. He tells her that he is just kind of disturbed by how easy this is for her. And she's treating it like she's just having a wart removed. Um, but at this point he storms out. This is when the detective and the other girls walk in detective. Uh, what was his name? Detective. Uh, you mean the Lieutenant, Lieutenant Fuller, Lieutenant. Lieutenant Fuller. Yeah, Lieutenant Fuller. Yeah, Lieutenant Fuller Fuller immediately takes note of of Peter and kind of his his mannerisms and his demeanor when he storms out. So what the uh the plan is now is that the cops want to come in, they want to tap the house or I'm uh, tap the phone. Um the girls kind of show them around the house. Cops leave. Uh now that the phone's been tapped, there's a separate phone that's placed on the uh detective uh, Lieutenant Fuller's desk. So every time that the house receives a call, he will also hear the call as well. And from there, they will track the call. How crazy was it watching how they track a call in the seventies? I mean, they tried to trace the call three times and I still had no idea what they were doing. Like you were I, just walking around the back of the phone place following Sounds like I, I don't know how calls are traced. These shots were amazing. I loved every second of them. Oh, so I did am, I. I'm so much of a tech nerd as well. Like that, the the original mechanical phone lines, like that, that was the problem was they were, they were like mechanical. It was electricity going into a mechanical item that was just spinning and then would transfer that data back out. So he was trying to follow the, the sound of the, the, the moving. It, it was, it was really cool. I, Is I didn't that know how that, that works. Sound. Yeah, it was some sort yeah. of magic. I don't. Tr- okay. totally understand yeah that i mean this goes back to like switchboard operators and everything still and it's it's a really impressive scene that they were able to get inside of one of these things but also uh just harkening back to where phones used to be it's it's very cool and then like this this pervades uh into today's time period as well because even every single time you hear about a traced phone call they're like you got to keep them on for three and a half minutes or else we're never going to be able to track them and it's like I don't know that now that still has to do with it. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like they can trace it a lot faster, but it's, it's stayed in consistent, like, uh, mindsets for, for this, from this time period all the way through till now. So it's very cool. Oh, I, I, yeah, I, I couldn't get enough of that. I, I, I really thought it was super neat. And I love when he is actually, he jacks in to like the active phone call conversations to hear them. Like he's just walking around with headphones yeah. Uh, yeah. Also, being an IT, being a tech nerd, like God, yeah, such a satisfying, such a satisfying kind and of behind the scenes. They they gave purpose to an otherwise like mi- extremely minor character. It, it was it was cool of them. Like it was a good. No one else in the, no other minor characters got like this kind of screen time. You know what I mean? So I, I appreciated it. Yeah. Finally, the tech nerds get represented. That's good. Yeah, and it's not like, I'm going to hack into the system with my three keyboards. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in. Uh, well, isn't that how that works? The more keyboards you have, the easier it is to hack. Yeah, and if we both type on the same keyboard, it makes it go faster. That, that is very true. true. Makes yeah. sense. So 
Uh, we look now we're back at the house. Now these shots are going to kind of go back and forth between the detective's office, the sorority house and uh, the telephone company building, I, I guess is what we'll call it. Um, so we get this great shot of the killer rocking Claire's body back and forth. Now Claire is holding a baby doll with like a painted face. Um, and the killer is rocking it back and forth. Uh, it's just super creepy. And, and, and there, there's more that goes into it that we'll kind of talk about after, after we get through the plot. But, uh, Barb wakes up from like this, what she assumes is like this crazy dream. We kind of see that like someone is watching her, but she wakes up and has this crazy asthma attack. Uh, Jess goes in there, calms her down, you know? Uh, but she's like, I, I, I dreamt that someone was in my room. <laughs> and of course we're all like, mm, you're, you're fucking next for sure. Uh, but next up absolute favorite part, because I knew just how much Mike hated it. I, Cue the yep. carolers. <laughs> Those damn carolers. Can, can we just can we also point out that Jess looked so unhappy about having to stand there and listen to them? Like I just felt like it was Mike. Like I could just Photoshop Mike's face onto Jess's body. Like what is the etiquette? Like what what <laughs> like how how do you receive what is happening? What is like the appropriate face to like stare at this sea of people who are just singing? into your house. I think it's just like a kid's concert. You just have to sit there and just like, like, okay, good job. You did it. You just did half it. smile. Do you have another one? No. Okay. No. okay. All That's right. it. All right. Good. Well, bye. What would you do, Mike? I would probably just shut the door on him and go back inside. <laughs> <laughs> Have another slice of cold pizza and say just oh fucking good riddance. That's exactly what I would do. I'll, yeah, I'll just shut, shut all the lights off and pretend I'm not home. Just make sure it's pineapple pizza. Mm. Oh, don't start. Don't start with that oh, again. What I mean, what else would Mike have? If we have any loyal followers who just really want to reach out and spread some holiday cheer, feel free to order Mike a pepperoni and pineapple pizza. He'll really enjoy it. Yeah, I'll enjoy some of that. So our next scene is the inevitable happening. Um, and as the carolers are are going through their fucking god-awful songs, but it's the 70s, so I guess it's, it's way more tolerated. Um, it provides just enough cover that uh, the inevitable happens. And Barb is killed with a glass unicorn that they've consistently, like, were kind of, like, inferring with the camera angles, focusing on it. Uh, and she gets stabbed in, I, I would argue, a pretty phallic manner with this long unicorn, glass unicorn horn, and just stabbed repeatedly in, like, the stomach. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting take. I wasn't sure they were going with that one. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I was sad to see her go. The two best characters at this point are dead. So I, I, I was a little sad. I was like, well, this is kind of the point where like, all right, the killer's going to kill everyone and, and Jess is going to live and let's see how this plays out. Because at this point, I, I was really sad that Mrs. Mack and, and Barb were dead. But it shows the killer's face is the other interesting part about this kill. It's what separates it from the others. And to me, at this point, it is so obviously Peter. It looks like him and he's wearing the same colored shirt. And I'm confused as to why they're being so upfront that Peter is the killer. 
Like there's no mystery to it. In in my eyes, that's that's where I was right now. No one else did anyone else kind of feel the same way? I th- I thought it might have been Peter. Definitely at this point, I was thinking that it was Peter. I thought having it would be Peter would be too obvious. So, because a lot of times, like movies like this, it is a faceless, nameless killer or predator. It's not always going to be somebody that's been introduced or the person that has, I wouldn't call it motivation, but some kind of reasoning to have a vengeance against these people. I always like the types of movies that have just a nameless, faceless killer who has no motivation, no reasoning behind what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, consistent with the theme that we've pointed out, we get another phone call. So now that Barb is gone, next thing that happens is the killer calls and he goes on and on. And and as these phone calls, every time you hear the same names, Billy and Agnes, that is constantly referred to. But at the end of the call, and she's trying to keep him on there as long as she can, uh, he says, just like having a wart removed and hangs up. Uh, and the, which just pushes more of the the Peter is the the bad guy, right? Exactly. Yeah. And I I was convinced, hundred percent. I was convinced at this point. So now I guess we have our uh, nude clock segment because for literally no reason at all, the next segment is <laughs> back at the police station where some cop walks in who got shot in the ass with buckshot for walking onto someone's lawn while they were doing the neighborhood search party for the girls. I, <laughs> my biggest problem with that is that the guy who shot him, they have him there and he's just in front of other cops says, yeah, and I do it again. And they're just kind of, they don't even have him handcuffed. They're not even holding him. They're just letting him stand there. It's just like he shot a cop. You this, can't this is what do I- that. <laughs> This is what I'd like to call white privilege. Just throwing it out there. <laughs> it was just buckshot. It was just buckshot. Yeah, yeah it's just buckshot. It was the man's property. Yes, I agree with that. But I also I do love his response of, uh, and I'm going to make him take him out, take him out of my ass with his teeth. <laughs> it did seem very like house on the little house on the prairie, like just kind of like, oh well, he shot me. Oh well, you were walking on that man's land, and there's like a life lesson that you can derive from it somehow. But it's convoluted, I guess. Don't don't get buckshot in your ass. I think that's it. It does that's a good lesson. It does absolutely nothing to further the story. Yeah, not nothing at all. Yeah, it just it, all it did was it distracted the police. That that's all that it potentially did as far as continuing the story. So now we're back at the house. The next call that we receive is Peter, who is calling Jess, crying about the baby. Um, the detective is listening to all of the calls. So after they get through with that conversation, Peter hangs up, and the detective calls back, and he asks, "What was that about?" And she's kind of pissed off. She's like, what the fuck? You're listening to this? He's like, hell yeah, I'm listening to everything. What are you talking about? And so she tells him that she is pregnant. And so now motive, he's already kind of pieced together that that there's motive on Peter's part. Did you talk about those two weirdos that show up at the house? Dude, no, I didn't. The the search party weirdos? No, please. Yeah, those guys were just like strange, and they're like, "Oh, well, we're at a sorority house. Oh, we got to." Did you hear that they found that dead body? Oh, 
uh, it was like a combination of uh, a kid from last week was like, oh, we're talking to girls. We're here at the sorority house. <laughs> they were just, they were just really annoying. Yeah, it, it. I think they, they. I think they were trying to imply that the town has both like highly educated people at this college, but also a bunch of like country bumpkins that also <laughs> live very close by that are just going around. Don't worry, you're safe now. <laughs> I think that's what that townie comment in the beginning is about. It, she's Maybe. associating her with kind of like, you know, white trash, lower, lower tier because she's from the local area. And we, and now we're kind of getting the country bumpkin setting that we're in outside of the college. I just like them being like, don't worry, we'll keep you safe as they point the shotgun right at her. <laughs> <laughs> How else are you going to show your uh, aggressiveness unless you wildly point a shotgun around? That's gun safety 101. You point the shotgun wherever you feel like it. Uh, finger on trigger at all times. So you're ready to shoot. The rest will work itself out, I'm sure. Yeah, the rest will work itself out. The bullets find where they need to go. <laughs> so uh, through this conversation, they're able to, like the detective and uh, Jess and Phil, who's the, another girl, the girl with the glasses, uh, kind of piece together that it couldn't be Peter because Peter was present uh, through the first phone call. But even I was kind of like, well, that's that's like happenstance. And I don't remember seeing him. And at this point, I'm still fully committed to the idea that it's Peter. Um, but while this conversation is taking place, you can see someone in the background during the conversation on the phone. And I, I am at this point still assuming that it is Peter. So Phil goes to check on Barb. She walks in the room. Uh, the door quickly closes. That's the last that we see. And we get another call, which should be telling about what likely came to Phyllis. Uh, and this one's the craziest fucking call yet. It's I think there's like four different voices that are used. <laughs> I'm just pictured the fucking director standing on his head, just screaming nonsense into the phone. Where's the baby? Yeah, like throughout this whole movie, the calls got progressively more creepy and more unhinged. And I really like how you see that progression. Because in the beginning, it was just like heavy breathing and uh, like, and it just gets to this point by the end of this movie. Yeah, it definitely. The, this movie in general is a slow burn, but this is where, in my opinion, it starts to really pick up as, as far as like the creepiness factor. Like the, these calls are getting... Like I, I was like, ah, whatever. They're just kind of like nonsensical calls, and and obviously, like that's the killer being kind of creepy, or whatever. And then they started to get to this point, and I was like, okay, someone is disturbed. Like this is mm-hmm. this is rough. This is getting more and more uh, unpleasant to listen to. <laughs> and that's saying a lot because like we started just with crassness, but even the crassness was like calling someone a piggy cunt, and that's I mean that's. Exactly. That's I was like, setting yeah, the whatever, bar that's pretty fine. high, and we were and we were climbing a mountain. Little did we know to how fucking nuts these these phone calls would be. Um, luckily, at this point, we go back to our IT nerd, our hero IT nerd. Um, shout out, and he is able to discern that the call is coming from inside the house. The classic trope. This is where coming it began. From inside the house. <laughs> Oh, so 
Uh, now, so de- the detective, uh, Lieutenant, whatever, what's his name? I always forget. Fuller. I'll never remember. Okay, Lieutenant Fuller. I'm going to forget. That's okay. Uh, <laughs> we'll tell you again. Yeah, we got you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. He tries reaching out onto the radio to the officer that he has placed at the house. He's not answering. The camera pans to the car, and we see that that officer has had his throat slit. The next person who is called is our dear beloved officer, I'm sorry, Sergeant Nash, who is given strict and implicit instructions not to tell her what's happening, just to tell Jess to get the fuck out of the house, put the phone down and walk right out the front door. So what does, what does the Sergeant Nash do <laughs> immediately? <laughs> he fucking tells her what's going on. <laughs> yeah. His, his tools of talking to her quickly went down the drain. He was like, okay, look, you just need to do this. Listen to me. And she's like, okay, I am. And he's like, no, no, you need to listen to me. She's like, okay. And he's like, okay, fuck it. You, there's a guy <laughs> in the house. And, 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 to, to be fair, she was like, I'm just going to go check my friends. She's like, well, the calls are from inside the house and he's in there with you. So. I'm the worst cop, and I'm going to ruin whatever orders I was given. <laughs> oh, did, God, he's just the worst. But did Lieutenant Fuller actually murder him when he got back? He should have. God, I hope so. That that should have been like a post credit scene. But, yeah, so Officer Nash tells her, to be fair, she did give him a little bit of pushback, but it didn't take much for him to be like, ah, fuck it, you're right. <laughs> Kyle's absolutely right. Um I give up. I've get, I've exhausted every option. <laughs> She's getting frantic on me. Quick. Another frantic woman. I don't know how to handle it. She can't control her emotions. I have to do it. Oh, gosh. Well, at this point, obviously, Jess is pretty fucking freaked out. So she starts screaming for uh, Phyllis and Barb. Uh, she grabs a fire poker. She goes upstairs. Walks into Barb's room. Barb's room, her door is absolutely awesome, by the way. It has a Christmas wreath with little airplane bottles of booze on it. I love the decor. I was a fan. Uh, But yeah, she opens the door and there's Phil and there's Barb uh, dead on the bed. And this part fucking got me, dude. Because then she looks immediately to her left and she looks through the crack of the door and you just see one crazy almost red looking eye i know and it starts whispering and in the crack of the door you just hear don't tell them what we did agnes and it fucking got me terrifying i 100 percent agree uh this was this was bad this was this was amazing Uh, i i didn't think the movie would hold up well but it it held up well it was so good I may have shit myself in that moment. I'm not going to lie. Dude, like, like films of this nature, you know, like it, it's it's kind of like they, they set the stage for all future horror and slasher flicks. But you don't go into these expecting to get fucking scared. Right. And up to this point, like it was really good and it was creepy as fuck, but I hadn't been scared. But this one scared me in a way that like any big budget film from today that would throw so much money to try to get the same reaction, you know, from the audience, it, it scared me effortlessly almost. It's that like, it's like a genuine fear, right? It's like your worst nightmare of like walking through your house and there's a crack open on one of the doors and you look through and it's just someone standing there staring at you. Right. It's like 
It's awful. It's terrifying. It was so good. So good. Uh, like I, I was such a fanboy after watching this for this movie. I can't believe I hadn't watched it up to this point. But anyway, uh, Jess at this point smashes the door onto the killer and the killer screams and is such a compelling and like strong scream. Like the acting is so phenomenal in, in this movie. And Jess runs downstairs. She's trying to get to the door. The door is locked. And this whole scene is so fast paced, right? It's such this fast paced chase between these two characters. And we're only getting glimpses of the killer. Um, and so Jess runs to the basement. I think he's able to like grab her hair momentarily. And he, she pushes him off. And she gets to the basement, locks the door. And he starts this visceral scream while he's banging, trying to break down this door. And it was just terrifying. And it was so powerful. Yeah, I feel the same way. I really like this like final confrontation between the two of them because it wasn't like just a quick one-off where like, one of them gets knocked out and the other one gets away. It was just back and forth. It was tense. It was brutal. I just really liked how it went down. It had a real like Sounds of the Lambs feel too, right? Yeah, I could see it. Yeah, that, I could see that too. I could get there. Yeah, yeah, I could definitely see that. So now that she's in the basement, uh, she's kind of looking around. You, you know, like from people going up in the attic and down into the basement, like it's clear that they've never been in these areas of the house because they're always like, what the fuck is this? They're all just looking around kind of aimlessly. There's actually something that's kind of cool. She sees that there's like this, it almost looks like a crib in the basement. There's like child's stuff, but there's like this red crib. You think that has anything to do with the fact she's pregnant or that was just the junk that was in the basement? So we'll, we'll kind of, we'll kind of circle back. Um, I'll, I'll get, I'll get through to the end, um, but it's, it was kind of like a little Easter egg for, for one of the long standing theories. Uh, but anyway, uh, so the next thing we see is that so there is a silhouette stalking um, that we presume is the killer stalking from the outside basement windows. Um, and it's a powerful use of the silhouette, you know, definitely such like a, a staple visually in, in horror movies. And this is kind of it at its, at its roots. Um, and then, we see that it's Peter for the first time. It's confirmed now that it's Peter, right? And he's he's trying to knock on the window and he's calling for Jess. He's trying to kind of brush off the like the ice that's formed on the window. And he just immediately punches through the window. Uh, he breaks in. And it, it's at this point that he's so calm and he's calling like, Jess, Jess, where are you? He's just so laissez-faire about it. I'm like, this is this is such clear schizophrenia. Right? Like multiple personalities. 100%. Yeah. So he sees Jess. He approaches her. Um, and we we kind of hear the scream off camera. Uh, the cops come in. Uh, they bust down the door. They discover Peter, who is presumably dead. He's bleeding from a few areas in the face. And Jess, uh, he, uh, Peter is laying on top of Jess. Jess is kind of stirring her eyes open. She's presumably like just clinging to life. Um, now this is kind of the after effect of everything. So Jess is sedated. She's put to bed upstairs. Uh, Mr. Harris, uh, is sitting in the room with, uh, the cops 
at one point, Mr. Harris, he kind of faints. He kind of goes into shock. The cops all leave to the hospital, which is, you know, what you do when there's an active crime scene. Everyone just gets up and leaves. Uh, there's no coroner. <laughs> and, they, and they leave Jess there. <laughs> like, it's like, oh, she's been through something very traumatic. Naturally. Well, let's just move on and uh, I'll just leave her here. We'll come back and get her later. Well, that's standard cop procedure. Get her to bed. Yeah, we'll yeah. bring her back an ice cream cone. I'm the, I mean, the only surviving witness who is in shock and still recovering from any kind of injury, you just leave her alone in her bed. That's the standard cop procedure. Sedated. Yep. Yep. Sedated, too. Yeah, sedated. I mean, you don't want her getting up and walking away. So you got to sedate her. But there was a robbery at the old donut and coffee shop. God damn it, man. Let's get down there. <laughs> Post haste. Yes, so now all the cops have left Jess alone in the house because this is absolutely the worst police precinct ever. Um, and it, this, uh, they turn the lights off, the camera pans to a creaking attic, which is the first point you're, t- you're like, get the fuck out of here. And then you hear, Agnes, it's me, Billy. And I was like, what? I, I, I was so confused at this point. Um, and the bodies now we're in the attic, the bodies of Claire and Mrs. Mack are still there. They're not found yet. Yeah. Which only yeah, adds argument that these are the worst fucking cops ever. Absolutely. <laughs> the most incompetent police force I have ever seen. And we've seen some pretty bad, like incompetencies with, uh, What's his name? Is it Dewey or whatever his name is from uh, Dewey Scream. is not an incompetent cop. Yes, he is. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was. I was like, I was like, they they didn't even like, they didn't go through the house. They didn't clear the house. Like, there's another. Fl- Come on, guys. I was to be fair. I don't go in my attic. I've been in my attic all of about maybe three times in five years. So it might as well not, not it might as well not exist to me. So I don't blame these cops for not going to the attic. I thought it was weird throughout the entirety. They they like never checked Claire's room for like an entire day. Like Claire's missing, but you don't check her room. And then they never go up and like do a full sweep of the house. Like what what the fuck is going on? Like and it, it's it just has to be incompetency on the cops' parts. I would say at this point, we're at least semi-professional, like, (laughs) experts on how dumb cops are portrayed in movies. And these guys are pretty high up on that scale. Well, check the box for a new profession for us. Now we are, well, we lost our doctorates. We did lose them. So to finish this up, uh... After we hear that crazy, creepy fucking voice and we see the body still up there, the camera now pans outside. We still get that beautiful shot. And really, this is the classic shot from the exterior of the house looking into the attic window of Claire's body. Uh, the one that they use for all the posters and all the <clears throat> all the. Uh, yeah, that, all the promotional items for this movie. And. The camera pans outside. There's one cop guarding the front door. So they at least did that. They posted a guard outside of the house where the killer was inside the house. So that's good. Uh, And then we hear a telephone ring. 
and the credits begin. And as we know, when a telephone rings, that means someone just ah, someone got killed. And the only person yeah. left in that house is Jess. So Claude. Claude. I, hope it's Claude. I hope it's not Claude. I'd rather Jess get fucking murdered. I hope Claude. <laughs> and that ends Black Christmas. I just awesome. think the final shot of this movie, like you were saying, how the camera was like panning out with the overshot of the house, which is like it was you said Claire was up in the attic with the dimly lit mm-hmm. candle. That's like probably my favorite shot of this movie because no from the street nobody sees her and yeah, it's really good yeah and I, I mentioned it earlier the the beginning the, the the first scene that we have is the the killer coming up to the windows and looking through the three windows and the last almost one of the last scenes that we have is the killer inside the house or the i guess just the camera inside the house looking at the three bedrooms and then the, the hallway so I, I thought it was a good uh it was a good use of a similar shot. So, so here we are in cinematography and special effects. Uh, I, I think this movie was really well done. I know that we talked that this is this, this movie kind of broke ground for at least the, the, the concept of the killers inside the house. And uh, it rehashed that babysitter murder thing going on. And I, I think that the cinematography really stood out as like very competent. It was, it was a good, a lot of like sweeping panning shots uh inside the house like the the shot they did a lot of shots from the um up the stairs down down towards the bottom of the stairs it was pretty cool um the the beginning and ending shots like i mentioned i don't know man i I think it was i think it was really well done and special effects wise there didn't need to be any it was just a lot of like moving around the blood looked very bad i will say that much it just looked like very uh you know light paint like red paint but other than that like i i I really liked it i liked all the 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 shots in this movie yeah i agree with 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 what you said about the blood because when uh the i forget her name the house mother gets pulled up with the hook into the attic there you don't see any blood at all which is kind of surprising to me uh all the shots from the killer's perspective of when he was moving through the house that was really cool because you felt like you were actually seeing things through his eyes when he was like slowly climbing up the ladder or in the beginning when he was breathing heavy and climbing up the side of the house into the attic, you felt like you were in his perspective doing these things. So it was a very well shot movie. Uh, I've already said it before, like the iconic final shot of the movie. It was just really well shot. Well done. It laid such a groundwork for everything to follow. You know, the I, th- I think you said the rehashing of the babysitter murders. I mean, this this laid all of the framework for everything that was done uh, for that for this kind of genre. It really did. It was such an adventurous use of the camera angles. It w- the first person view hadn't it wasn't new at that point, but it had never been used in this in this style. And it was used to kind of capture that that the killer was able to kind of go everywhere throughout the house um, so that you could never feel claustrophobic per se uh, because he was everywhere. Uh-huh, he was, he uh-huh. was able to get around everywhere. So he had the, who would say claustrophobic? No one, no one in more than once. Nobody ever. I think at this point we've all said it more than you giving the, as an impression oh, yeah. of you. <laughs> I, I make a point to avoid using that word. <laughs> 
it's the worst c word the the one thing that i really appreciated was um that they never really showed his face and i think a lot of horror movies still don't do that even the remake of this like they like went into like an extensive backstory of the killers of billy and agnes and it's like Mm -hmm. you know this is just some random guy like we have to build our own narrative on what do we think he's doing here why did he decide to come to this house um so i i think like the way that they shoot it and they don't like explicitly give you the person um i I think that that was very well done and it's something that we still don't really see that often in these type of movies and it gave such a like a clear direction with the red herring being peter like all of the camera or i'm sorry all the shots that made you like Okay, yeah, it's Peter. I'm like, was this supposed to be hard? Was was this supposed to be a guessing game? I think I won, and, and then I lost because the way it was shot. And yeah, you're right. The only the only real backstory that you can piece together is what you get from the phone calls. Yeah, and if that takes care of that, I'll just just do some uh, music and, and sound effects and whatever else is going on inside the house. I. Uh, I think you mentioned about the the Christmas music and how these movies somehow find a way to make cheerful Christmas music seem sinister. And they did it every time there was music in this movie. It was just Christmas music that sounded absolutely terrifying and sinister. Yeah, I thought it was uh, I thought that was pretty cool. Sound effects wise. Yeah, the the cat meowing, the the creaking upstairs was good. Um, I think. Nothing seemed out of place. Nothing seemed really odd. The only thing I, I saw or heard at the beginning of the movie was like the door opening and closing sound was extremely loud, like in the first two seconds. But I guess that was also trying to pull your attention towards the front door, which is how the killer ends up just walking, waltzing right into the house, you know, uh, or at least it's, that's what's implied, I think. But otherwise, yeah, I think it was uh, I think it was uh, the music was cool and it, it was nothing special because it was just rehashed Christmas music, but it was used at the right times and in the right ways. So, so I, I read that um, when they were trying to like make the sounds kind of more sinister, they actually tied forks, knives and combs to the piano strings. And that like warped the sound that they were playing as they were doing it. So that like tied into how they were able to like get that kind of sinister sound to what they were doing. It almost like kind of the, uh, not necessarily like the jump scares, but the more tense moments where you hear almost that piano bang, it almost sounded similar to like when Peter destroys the grand piano, just that kind of bang, that clash. And I realized like, was that the, cause, cause that's, that sound effect is still used today. I think like it, it, it sounds similar to what is used today. And I'm wondering if, if that's kind of like its origin. Or maybe I'm overthinking it, which is entirely possible. But no, I would take that. I, I think you are. You're probably correct in that sense. Um, but yeah, uh, I would like to move on to our spoopy meter. If we're good, Dan, uh, how would you like to use what scale would you like to use this week? So for this week, um, because it's the Christmas spirit, uh, Chris and I came together in the Christmas spirit of togetherness, and we, we both had different ideas, so we kind of melded them together. So my original idea was to do the 12 days of Christmas, uh, so a 0 to 12 scale, and and then Chris called me and was like, 
but the killer's name is Billy. And I was like, mm, all right, fine. So we're going to go zero to 12 Billies. How many Billies? How many of Billy's <laughs> nipples would you press up against that glass? <laughs> uh, if I'm going to start with this, uh, <laughs> I think, I think I, I would like to say that much like Jarvis said, this, this movie did get me, especially towards the end. I started feeling pretty uncomfortable with the calls that were coming in. It just started dawning on me that like how there was so little that you could do to reason with this person. And they were just going to murder just because they had, they can't control themselves. They, they are serial killer esque, uh, schizophrenic, whatever you want to call it, you know? And I, the eyeball coming in at the end. I, I, I think that this one actually is one the first time in a while that this has actually been a, a good spook for me. And I, I would probably out of 12 billies, uh, I would give it, I'd probably give it a, a five or a six. Like it was, it's not something it, it, in my scale. Uh, I would not have my fiance watch this with me because she would be uncomfortable the whole time and just she wouldn't even watch she would just run away from the from this this thing so yeah i it it just wouldn't it wouldn't happen so yeah it's a good good five or six overall i i really like this movie you know it it it's very slow uh at least in the beginning the, the midway through it got like a little repetitive and a little boring but like as soon as stuff really picked up, I, it was very much worth the watch, and I'm I'm happy that that we did this. So I would give this uh, nine billion nipples. <laughs> Can someone remind me where where what this reference is? The the billies. Wasn't it, it uh, not another teen movie? No, no. It was Cable Guy referencing oh, another movie. It's where it's where he like pushes his nipple against the thing when um what's his face is in jail and he's like, Oh Billy. There we oh, go. Yeah. Now I remember. You got it. <laughs> okay. So for me, overall, like I feel the same way Kyle did. It was an uncomfortable movie. The progressive like creepy phone calls. And just like the the lurking of this killer in the house when he was going unnoticed, when everybody else was going about their business, was like unsettling. So spoopy wise, I would give this probably about five ballets. And uh, overall, as a movie, I like this movie a lot. It was one, like I said before, it was one of the first movies to use the trope of the calls for coming inside the house. It did show people. Like, especially just like out of typical character of what a woman at that time was. And it showed a, a couple of really bad cops who did not do their job. And overall, Barb, Barb was my favorite. Uh, she later went on to play Lois Lane in all Superman movies. So that's a cool little fact. So, overall, as a movie, I would probably give it. Eight and a half billies out of twelve. I love that you're all just leaning into like saying it like that too. It's amazing. So <laughs> it makes it better. Um, spoopy wise, I would give it a probably a solid four and a half to five billies. Um, a lot of the phone calls like didn't really scare me, but I just 
how the the dialogue was said and all the different voices just made me really uncomfortable. But I enjoyed that, not in like a weird way, but I, I enjoyed it because, like, <laughs> man, it's not scary, but God, is it unsettling? And I like when a movie can do that. Um, I, I I will agree with Jarvis. The the eye through the crack of the door, that was terrifying. Especially along with the, you know, don't tell Agnes what we've done. That was awesome. Um, so that'll probably knock it up to the uh, five billies as a whole. I'll probably go with about seven. I really enjoyed it. Um, but the the beginning of the movie being slow, it kind of lost me at a few points. I like would just kind of mentally check out for a second just because I couldn't really tell what was happening. But then towards the end with them wiring, uh, tracking the calls, that's where it really sucked me back in. And then I was just all in it for like the last like 25, 30 minutes of the movie. So yeah, I give it a, a solid seven billies. I, I was completely captivated from start to finish. So spoopy wise, right? It takes a lot. Like I'm pretty jaded. It takes a lot for something to like really get under my skin. And for whatever reason, man, that eye in the crack of the door straight fucked me up. Like some movies, like will will throw everything they got at me, and I and I got nothing for them. But that one, it, it, that scene killed me. Um, so I was I was legitimately kind of impressed with it and by it. So um, I, I'll give it like a six or seven billies. And so overall, though, totally captivated. I, I won't say I was disappointed when we decided that I was doing the original. That I was we were doing the original. Uh, as opposed to the remake that I was familiar with. Um, but I, I was, you know, uncertain if it would be as interesting because I, I liked the remake personally. And holy shit, like it, it gave me, it, it really kind of brought it home as to why this is considered such like a staple of the horror genre. And really the, the, what paved the way for horror in, other holiday settings other than, you know, the typical Halloween and, and what it's typically associated with. So it's, you know, it's such a, uh, it, it's, it's such like an iconic film that laid the groundwork for, for so much to follow. So overall I'm giving it an 11 out of 12 billies and I would recommend this movie to everyone I meet. Uh, spoopy wise, I'm going to give this a, I'm going to go eight billies just because like that whole concept is terrifying and it only became truly terrifying, uh, at the end when we see that eye and they have that big chase scene and he grabs her hair and like, that's when it just like really hit like, oh my God, this is like, this is scary because it could just be a thing. Like this has happened to people. This could happen. And so that, that like kind of brought it into that. So for that, I'm going to give it eight billies. And for the overall, man, I, I got to go with like Jarvis. I, I want to give this like an 11, maybe even a 12. I can't think of anything that I didn't like about it. So it's hard for me to not just give it a perfect 12, um, 12 of those nipples from Billy. Um, I, I just think it's, it's such a, masterpiece of like a horror movie it's it's great it's slow paced but it does the slow pace well and usually i hate slow paced horror movies but this was like 
okay, I'm watching a movie, I'm watching a movie. And then the last 20 minutes hit and I'm like, holy shit, everything's happening. Like everything just culminates into this one moment where we're having this like high intense moment. And it, it's great. Um, I, so for that, I'm going to give it, I'm going to go 12. I just think it's a perfect movie for what it's doing. And I, I can't stress enough. Go watch it if you haven't seen it. It's amazing. So the only reason I couldn't go like the full 12 was just because I, I really wished there was more background on kill on the killer who, who we, I guess are left to believe that is Billy. Um, and it, it was just a, a little, a little ambiguous. It was left a little vague. Um, but, uh, real quick, like before we hand it back to Kyle, I just wanted to kind of go over some theories um, that I researched. And one of the top leading theories was that uh, everyone is kind of on board with it being Billy. You know, that is the killer, right? This isn't like a made up person, but it's highly likely that this is just some like so uh, psychopath that escaped a psych ward, right? We don't know. We uh, a, a lot is left to kind of be interpreted however you want to interpret it. But there is some inference in the visual aids in the movie that this could be the killer's childhood home, right? So like all of the dusty old kids' toys and furniture, the crib down in the basement, the rocking horse up in the attic. Um, There are theories out there that this could have been Billy's childhood home, which is why he's so familiar with it, which is why he's able to kind of move about the way he does. Um, yeah, I like that theory. Mm-hmm. That like this was the his childhood home. I mean, but I, like in contrast to you, I like the fact that we never know who he is or what his motivation is. He's just some mysterious, ominous figure that's not like a character in the movie like Peter was. He just this unknown force that's uh, a threat to everybody. Yeah, I, I definitely get the appeal to that, and I th- I think that's. I respect that the way they did that. Um, and I, you know, I, it's not appealing to me because like, I like a tight story, you know, I, I like answers and everything, but I, but the fact that I am unsettled by it only kind of lends credence to what the director was trying to do. So I respect that and I like it, but I, what I do will say, and uh, maybe one day we'll, we'll cover the, the remake, but I like that the remake in 2005 gave some background and some clarity on Billy as a character and his sister, Agnes. Say what you will, but I thought it was a pretty interesting story that they came up with. And it tied together very nicely. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think I, I think we all appreciated this movie. Um, definitely my first time watching. Um, Jarvis's first time watching. And I think it was... It was very much worth it. So, if we are cool in our uh, in our little uh, rating scale se- section, are, are we good to say goodbye? Thank you for listening. Thank you for hopefully enjoying our our podcasts. Uh, we really appreciate everybody listening. Uh, you can go ahead and reach out to us on all the social media stuff. We're trying to be a little more active, so you know, reach out, tell us some movies, tell us what you liked, what you didn't like. Uh, you can see all that in our podcast description. Uh, I also want to thank uh, Connor McLeod for our artwork and i want to thank uh andrew cavanaugh for our intro and outro music and um 
yeah if we are good to go chris why don't you tell the people what they came here to listen to thanks for stopping by and having a horrible time If she's like, hey, can you bring me my phone? Like, and she's doing, so- if she's like changing a diaper or whatever, like, I'll be like, hold on, I gotta find it. It's like right next to me, and I'm just like sizing up the perfect, the perfect angle to get my balls in the bubble in, in the shot, and then I'm putting it as her background on the phone, and I'll be like, here you go, babe, and I'll walk away, and I'll just kill my ten, and I'll just hear, I'm gonna fucking kill you. <laughs>